Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claybell, your host, and with me today is your other host, Caleb Wells from Typhon Group. Want to say hi? Hey, hey. And we got a good guest today. It's Wade Gosden. Say hi, Wade. Hey. How's it going? Glad to have you here today, Wade. One of the things that I find that we talk a lot about at the different conferences and the different things that I'm working on is open source software. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas around open source software, but we don't often think about the people who are building it and trying to maintain it. I had a friend, John, who came to me. He's been a guest on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times. He came and he actually said, hey, Chuck, I wish there was a show about sustaining open source. That really hit me where I live. And I have a few other friends who are working on projects related to this. So we all got together and we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. You can find it at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. It's a place where several people who are passionate about open source come together and have conversations about how it can be sustained and how it can be maintained and what we can do to help these maintainers continue to deliver us value that we build our software on. Most of the software we're building is based on open source. And so it's important to us to have that maintained and have it taken care of. Come check it out. It's been really interesting to listen to the conversations that they're having from people who are working in it all the time and just hear what they have to say about it. Once again, that's at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. So why don't you just start us off and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So I'm a .NET developer all the way down in the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand, but I'm probably more well known for writing a website or a blog called .NET Core Tutorials.com. And I've been doing that for about three years now. I started way back in the early days of .NET Core where it was... I think it was named maybe even MVC5 or something like that at that time. And it really just started as a brain dump of my ideas and trying to help people out. I think the documentation in those early days was really bad. I think even in those early days of .NET Core, you had like project.json. I'm not sure if you guys remember that. And yeah, and yeah it was like the JSON project file versus and CS DMX. Yeah, 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 the DNX commands and stuff. And so I joined, I started writing right when all of that started to shift. So it was project JSON shifting to CSProj and DNX changing. And so it was like every time you searched for an issue, you had to work out which ones were old, which ones were new, which ones worked for what you were doing and which version of the SDK you had installed. And so it really just started with me writing hey, I ran into this issue. I couldn't find anyone else who could solve it. Here's what it was. And often it was really simple. It was run this command line and work out what version you have because you need probably the version one more or something like that. Um, and that's really how it started. But um, going, going a bit before then, I basically started in .NET around about .NET 2, I think, was my first introduction right about when .NET 3.5 was being introduced. And yeah, it was, I mean, it was a pretty good time. I got to skip the heebie-jeebies of .NET Framework 1, (laughs) join in 2. And then I was even looking recently around um, .NET 3.5 and what it introduced. And it's actually kind of amazing. I think you could probably work on a .NET project of 3.5 and not, I mean, you don't have async and things like that, but you could probably work on it and think, yeah, this kind of works. But if you went to .NET 2, I think you would really notice the difference. The difference. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I think Caleb and I both had to deal with some of those heebie-jeebies you were talking about in in .NET 1.1. You know, no master pages, lots of things that just were were not ready but made things difficult, but uh, it was still a good experience. You got to start somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. I think even in the C sharp language, I was looking, I'd forgotten. I think I was even talking to a friend about that it wasn't until 3.5, I think, that automatic property getters and setters came about. Yeah. And before then, you had to have a backing private variable every time. Yeah. Just things like that, that you think, oh, yeah, that does make our life so much easier, so much easier. I find that as .NET and C Sharp continue to grow and evolve, right? They're they're adding a lot of, I guess you would look at them now as kind of common sense things that make our lives much easier. And once you get used to them, you're like, how did I live without that? Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely. So, I think even in that 
release was the var keyword as well, which again yeah. is something that is just you need to use. And even Lambda, I think, was introduced in 3.5. So it's it's pretty crazy what got introduced at that point. Yeah, we uh one of our previous episodes, uh, Sean and I discussed Link and uh, it came in 3.5. And then all of the advancements and iterations that evolved from Link and, and a need to expand on it and really make it a first-class member of C-sharp. So we, we've come a long way. I mean, because I didn't really know any different, yeah. um, were you guys developing in .NET around that time when Link got introduced? Like, what was the feeling when it got introduced? What is this? This is weird. Syntax doesn't make any sense. But honestly, uh, I guess a few months in, you know, things started to click. And I find that things like Link have greatly uh, simplified my code structure and my flow. And there's so much less plumbing that I have to write these days. So... I think that's that's something that a number of programmers or developers have issues with, right? Is you get a new a new introduction into a language, maybe even a complete paradigm shift in that language, and it throws people for a loop and people don't want to change. And I get that, right? Because a change is hard and uh, the way you're doing it can be comfortable. But if you're willing to to take that step and try it, I found more often than not that it's made my life a heck of a lot easier. What about you, Sean? Yeah, I, I remember, you know, I started out with classic ASP, even doing VB6 stuff prior to that. So but when Link first came on, I was, I was the same way, seeing that the query syntax is the first time I was exposed to it. And I went, wow, why did they change that from to be different from the SQL language? Why didn't they just be more consistent? You know, now I know why they did it. It was a good reason why. It was like, how am I going to use it? And I just kind of stuck with my own ways of dealing with for each and for loops for a while until I really ran into the Lambda syntax. And doing that with Energy Framework, that's when it really started clicking for me and became really useful. So, Wade, have you been using .NET Core outside of uh, your website, .NET Core tutorials, and like, like for business stuff since it went release candidate since it released? Yes. Yeah, so what actually happened was I actually started the website because I was contracting at the time, sort of three-month okay. contracts here and there. And one of the contracts uh, was for .NET Core. They wanted to sort of get ahead of the wave. And it was yeah. a brand new Greenfields project. So it was perfect for picking .NET Core. And that would have been in the ones. It wasn't version two yet. Right. So it was very early on. And it was it was great to use. And And realistically, it was a good... You know, Greenfield's project that doesn't have any legacy involved in it was great. The problem is when you go and you're working for a company and they go, okay, we want to build this thing on .NET Core, but we wanted to integrate, you know, maybe using WCF or, (laughs) you know, like they've got a lot of legacy. I think it was also in the early days, there was a lot Mm -hmm. of, um, there was a lack of things for... Uh, like system.drawing, so right. doing things they, with images. They didn't port a lot of stuff over initially. Like, for instance, I, I know they didn't port uh, mail over, like the, the whole email infrastructure, right? And they basically said, go find an open source solution. There's a lot of great ones out there. That's changed, uh, of course. They, 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 I don't say they reverse course, but as they hit two and on, they were able to add more of that backward compatibility or move things into .NET standard. So you could use them without giving up um, being able to do cross-platform, right? Because I think that was the reason why they limited what was in one. But yeah, it's uh, we ran into the same issue because uh, like you, we were able to, to kind of use .NET Core from the beginning. And um, while I agree with you, there's it was actually a breath of fresh air from, uh, from using .NET Framework and some of the, the heavy uh, DLLs you had to use. But there were definitely growing pains, and there were things we had to, to work around that we wouldn't uh, at this point. It, it's funny you mention mail because 
that was one of my very earliest posts was how to send an email in .NET Core. (laughs) And still to this day, it is one of the most searched posts on my website is just how to send an email, just how to, how, how do I use SMTP client? And I, as you say, I had to write, okay, you can't send it. I think for a while, even the Microsoft documentation pointed to the open source library of MailKit. I think for a while. Um, and, and now they've ported it and they've changed the documentation. Okay, now you can use SMTP client. But it was things like that early on that were definitely a huge pain. And especially if you already, if you were trying to convert an existing code base, it, it was almost, almost a hundred percent that you're going to run into an issue where you, you, right. you just hit a brick wall and you can't go any further. Yep. We pulled in a couple of open source items that we were trying to use in our application. Uh, again, build it from scratch. And uh, we tried to kind of do our own port from .NET Framework to .NET Core. And there was a ton of stuff that we ended up having to remove, replace, or handle a different way just because the functionality didn't exist in Core. We got it to work. But um, I appreciate the work they put into to 2 in, in mm-hmm. having more of that larger you know, access to... to to the namespaces in standard. And I think, you know, they're going to do even more of that in .NET Core 3, right? Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask, when you ported your project, mm-hmm. was there, how did you do it? Did you sit down and sort of think about, because there's things like middleware or right. um, the service collection. Did you right. really sit down and think about how you can re-architect it? Or was it just a lift and shift and we'll just worry about, maybe some of the, probably like things like MVC filters that you could maybe make into middleware. Did you think about that or was it just, no, let's just shift it? No, it was uh, it was something that I actually probably spent a good couple of months on um, kind of re-architecting it. What we were doing is um, working out multi-tenancy in a SaaS application and, you know, how that interacted with um, database in any framework core. And of course, just like .NET Core, EF Core, release with everything you needed, but not necessarily everything you wanted, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I had to take it in chunks and figure out, okay, how can I implement this pattern or the way they handled this in .NET Framework and .NET Core? And we got to where we needed, but mm-hmm. it was definitely a, a process because um, it was difficult to lift and shift at that point. It really was. Totally. And for for Entity Framework, was there anything mm-hmm. that was really critical and missing at that point? Because just recently I came across that lazy loading, although, you know, some developers swear by not using lazy loading, right. um, which is, you know, totally reasonable. But the, I think it was until version 2.1, mm-hmm. EF Core didn't have the ability to lazy load, even if you wanted it to. Right. I think one thing that we ran into initially, at least one pain point that I can definitely remember, is uh, when we were doing code-first migrations, right? You still, you had code-first migrations. You had uh, the fluent tooling that you could update and and change, manipulate, but it didn't work the same as it had in .NET framework. And there were issues that we ran into with uh, table relationships, you know, one-to-many and many-to-many. And so we spent some time where we would have to to actually do several iterations on a, a migration to get it where we needed it to be. So one of the early pain points was that many-to-many relationships, right? Because yeah. it really yeah. did, it made it difficult to set that up because you had to manually put in that intermediary object into the context instead of the way it does in EF6. We had to rewrite uh, significant chunks of the, the fluent migration uh, files to get it to do exactly what we needed, which I don't know that we would need to do at this point. You mean like you would create the migration then create SQL essentially and try and do it that way? Well, no, we would create the, the migration, but then we would manipulate the migration after right, the fact. Right, like, you right. know, Entity Framework would, would create it based on what it thought we wanted. Mm-hmm. We're like, no, you know, we're using our collection here, this relationship tying back to that item, you didn't do it. And, you know, we could change the, um, the classes and still not necessarily get the result we wanted. So we would manually update the migrations themselves. 
that is one frustration that I always have with EF Core is that I think sometimes when you create the migration, it's not clear how it came to that migration. Mm -hmm. And so you end up kind of searching, like, what should I do to my model to make it build the migration just straight off the bat? Even though it's going to work with what I have if I edit the migration manually, Mm -hmm. I kind of want it to know that I'm doing the right thing. (laughs) Um, It's really painful. And I I do think it's gotten better. But with one, we kind of got in a position where we realized the migration isn't writing out the way we would expect it to based on the way we know we've set it up. You know, that, that was just, that was a learning process and it, and it was, it was good. It, it uh, forced us to dig back into that side of things, which I don't know about you guys, but you know, I typically only start a new project every two or three years, maybe. And I have to relearn the whole migration, the syntax, how, how it's coded, you know, uh, the changes you can make, the relationships. I have to learn all that all over again or at least refresh because you just don't use it that often. So, Caleb, is your current production application, is that using Core? Yeah, it's Core 2 and Angular 6. And we're in the process of uh, working through scope and, and uh, doing some research on our next project, which will be... Uh, Angular 8 and .NET Core 3 starting out. And, and we, honestly, we've been very happy. I, I know, we're, I know we're, we're nitpicking over certain things. We've been very happy with, with our implementation and the code base as a whole. But, but like with anything, especially as big of a change from .NET Framework to .NET Core, even with all the knowledge you have from .NET Framework, there's still stuff to fix and learn from and, and evolve. So... Is there anything in .NET uh, Core 3, so you're talking about your next project, yeah. what, what in .NET Core 3 have you seen so far that you're like, that would be what's making you go, yeah, I should be using .NET Core 3? There's some cool items in it, some stuff that's like, oh, that's neat. That, that would be interesting to, to use that. Some, yeah. of, well, some of the patterns, uh, the new patterns that they, they built in the C-sharp. But I think one that we're actually going to try to put into use since we're going to be, again, starting from scratch is the, the null reference management. Wow. Well, right, because if you're starting from scratch, you can, you can treat it like mm-hmm. you would with a language that doesn't allow for nulls at all, mm-hmm. right? And we'll see. We'll see how that goes. You know, if it, if it doesn't work out well or it doesn't flow with, with the process and it's actually making things more difficult, we may back off of that, but... I think we're going to give it a shot. I think as well, it's it's not like something where you can't, I mean, it's just adding a, a question right. mark on the end if you need it, you know what I right. mean? I think that also the nullable type support also, it, it has a, so when you turn it on, it mm-hmm. only warns if there's an error, if, if right. it's going to be an issue, right? right? So it's almost like even if, even if you get to a point where it's like this isn't really working, you can still yeah. turn it to just treat it like warnings and still have that knowledge that it's there kind of thing. Sean, I think you've turned, I think you've, you're using Lay's version of C-sharp and you turned it on and, and you were like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. This week I found out that you actually can enable uh, nullable reference types in the full mm-hmm. framework because I'm using my projects uh-huh. .NET nice. 4.8. So uh, just my project, my solutions probably got 10 to 12 different projects in it. And I turned it on on just one of the projects and I went, oh boy, <laughs> that's going to be a lot of fun. But, uh, but, but it, was, it was useful because uh, yeah. maybe really start thinking about you know, how I'm going to apply it for any new projects that I build. Because you know, when you have to make a string, a lot of times you want to allow it to be null. Um, but other times you want to make sure it's not. So yeah. It does do a lot of, you know, teaching better ways to structure your code so that you're not going to come up with those issues in, new, in future projects. Now, I haven't been able to use .NET Core in any projects other than just some sample projects so far because my uh, solution that I work on right now is on web forms. Right. And right. They're, they're not doing that going forward. So I've got to look at kind of shifting over into either Blazor or... Mm-hmm. MVC or something like that, or just I may end up just going full Angular front end and Web API back end. That might be easier for me to to move stuff over because right now about a third of my content pages are using Angular 
and mm. two thirds of them are still web forms. Sean, I think you should do Blazor. I know it's what you want to do. Uh, it's 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 uh, right. That's your bread and butter. Just just go with it. I, I have to say, I um I saw the Blazor podcast and the, the previous okay. podcast, and I haven't listened to it yet. I'm not going to lie. I, Blazor to me just seems a bit. It it, it actually feels, to, to be brutally honest, it does feel a bit web formsy. Where it is sort of like, is do we really need to come up with a new way to do this? Is is, is yeah. JavaScript not a, not not enough? I do want to have a play with it though. What's sort of the target audience for Blazor? Is it for well, C sharp developers? That yes, don't? I think yeah. I think that's really the target market. Well, and here's the thing, right? Blazor didn't start out as necessarily in a, a real intention. It was more of a side thing like, hey, look, look what we can do with C Sharp. Look at how we can put .NET in everything. I know people, I think Sean is one of those, that it strikes a chord with them, right? It mm-hmm. feels good. And I don't think by no means is it going to replace JavaScript or even necessarily be better than JavaScript. But I do think options are good, and especially for people who are um, object-oriented programmers who have done all their stuff in .NET, who would like to to do more on the website, maybe right, and in the front end. I think Blazor is going to be a, a great option for them, you know, in the next year or two. Yeah, for me, I've been using WebForms for eighteen, nineteen years now. So that kind of a concept being all component-based really fills in, fits in with the way I've handled things in the past because I, I think of Blazor as 21st century web forms. Mm-hmm. It's just <laughs> it's done so much better. It's the way that you know web forms would have been done this way back then. That would have been gotcha. totally awesome. But of course, we didn't have WebAssembly and some of the other technologies that we had then. But the, the, the paradigm that you've put your mindset into is very similar. And that's kind of reason why I think I ended up going with Angular because it's all component-based type things. You got your view, your, your model, and your controller, but it's more by component rather than by the whole page. So being able to make things reusable really works well for me. So I actually don't know that much about... I, I did WebForms many years ago, but I haven't done it in quite a long time. What's sort of the, the state of WebForms... In in 2019, going forward, like is it? So I know I know that they're not dragging it into .NET Core, so you can't run web forms in .NET Core. So what is sort of the outlook for web forms going forward? I think right they they say it's not dead, but it's dead. I mean, <laughs> I, and well, and I think Sean can speak to this, right? Sean, if you were starting a new application right now, you wouldn't do it in web forms, even no. with all of your experience, right? right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some downsides with web forms with view state and the way it does postbacks. If you're not using AJAX and things like that to make the user experience not as not as nice. So yeah, being Blazor, you know, being able to switch out parts of the DOM and either run it server side or client side. You know, I focus more on the user experience nowadays, and Blazor really handles that much better. And and like Angular does versus what web forms does the capabilities of what you can do to just make the user experience more interactive without doing all these big postbacks becomes much better. And so, you know, web forms, you can still pretty much do whatever you must do with it, but uh, it's going to be, you know, five, 10 years from now, it's going to be five or 10 years since it's really had much added to it. So it's not something that I would go go through again. I guess that, Brings us to another point of the .NET Core 3 release, yeah. and that is desktop apps. I was kind of surprised that they, I thought they might take the opportunity to only port WPF and sort of leave WinForms behind mm-hmm. um, and sort of, I mean, they could make up any excuse they wanted, but then it kind of forces people to move to WPF, which is kind of seen, I suppose, as a better version of WinForms in some ways. But only recently have I gone back to using web, web, uh, sorry, WPF and WinForms. But um, do you guys know much about desktop development in .NET Core 3? Is it actually a reality or is it just sort of a, you, you could do it, but you wouldn't? Good question. In line with that, I think you have a post up on your website about 
uh, .NET Core 3, and you break down all the items based on the the release. So we'll we'll uh, we'll add that to the show notes for people who are interested. I'll be honest. I mean, the last time I did desktop apps was .NET 2. So it's been all all web since there. So I can't really uh, speak to that that much. I do agree with you. I I don't know how many people are going to move their WinForm apps over, but I can see the right WPF existing WPF coming over and trying to trying to migrate. I, I can see the value in that. I guess it's kind of interesting, especially because .NET Core was sort of seen as a cross-platform play as well. Right. And right. with WinForms and WPF, I think it's still Windows only at this point in time. Yeah. Sort of an interesting right. move, I suppose. But obviously in .NET Core as well, there's a lot of sort of performance improvements and things like mm-hmm. that and sort of the use of span and things like that that you may want to use in WinForms and WPF. So I can see why they moved it. But I'm also kind. Uh, I'm sort of dubious about whether people are actually going to move the existing apps or, or continue building WinForm apps, but in .NET Core. Well, you know, I think maybe they're looking further ahead, right, to mm-hmm. .NET five, because uh, my understanding, and I think we've discussed this in some of our previous podcasts, is in .NET five they're they're planning on uh, right. That's going to be the new version of .NET, and they're consolidating a lot of their compiler stuff and a lot of their backend stuff and Mono and .NET Core and all that stuff. They're going to try to to get them all lined up. And so, if you're doing that, you're going to need to have some way to to move forward with at least WPF, right? And you don't want to give up that cross-platform compatibility because that's one of the that's that's one of the biggest selling points of .NET Core. So, right, it's, I think it's more of a, um, probably a business decision versus something that, that will, that may get a lot of use. And, and I think that's something that you and I were talking about, right, is what are some of the things in three that people will, will really use on a regular basis? Obviously, nullable reference types, mm-hmm. it, it's sort of, because .NET Core 3 coincides with C Sharp 8 almost, it's sort of what's... Right, they're, they're together, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah. what is actually .NET Core? But I, I definitely think nullable reference type support is a big one that mm-hmm. will be used a lot. I know on previous podcasts, you talked about the iAsync enumerable, which I just think is going to be used in almost every single project. I mean, it just makes sense. Some of the other things I think there's, there's those... I think it's in C sharp eight is the switch expression. So being able to return a value straight from a switch statement without having to do the case break sort of pattern. Yeah. I think that's going to be used a lot and it's going to become just one of those things that you forget that you don't have to write case break anymore. It's almost like auto property getters and setters that it just, it just works. It just happens. More that uh, syntactic sugar that, like, when yeah. you say, eventually it's it's the way it's done. And instead of twenty lines of code, it's five or whatever. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on DevChat.tv, and I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community; they wanted a React show, and the other one was from the Ruby community, and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show, though, is React Roundup. And every week, we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. So there's also, for example, the range type, which Mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting. Um, I really liked the idea of it. Mm-hmm. But the range type or, or the range syntax, if you will, yeah. is only actually available, I believe, for arrays. I could be wrong, but I think it's only available for arrays. And these days, I mean, you kind of, it's all lists or eye collection or what have you. So mm-hmm. I don't know how much use range is going to get. I don't ever really remember newing up an array in the last you know, two years or so, you know? I definitely feel like I deal more with arrays and TypeScript in Angular these days mm-hmm. than I mm-hmm. do in C-sharp. And I can see the, the value in having it there as part of your toolkit, but I agree with you. I, 
I don't think it's going to get uh, necessarily a lot of use except in, in uh, specific situations. So, so I watched a lot of the uh, .NET Conf um, oh, presentations yeah. this week. So, and a lot of these things that they really went through, and so they did give some really good examples. You know, showing Blazor, they showed you know the new features of C Sharp. They even had a couple different sessions on C Sharp, and one of them was just the nullable reference types. Another session went through all the other different you know span of T's and pattern matching and all these types of things. So if people do want to see the videos for that, those are all online. So uh, you can go to the .NET Conf uh, website and uh, check those out. You know, I one thing I thought was cool in one of the Blazor sessions is they actually showed how you can put Blazor into Electron, mm-hmm. so you can have a desktop Blazor application cross platform. And that that went just like I got to try that, so I'm working on it. I think we right we discussed this with uh, Daniel. Right, you can write it once for the most part, and then have it in multiple places. I do think uh, WebAssembly is going to take off in the next couple of years. Not just .NET, Blazor, C Sharp, but in general, it's been in the browsers and in the spec for quite a while, but I think um, it's it's getting a lot more coverage these days and people are going to find interesting ways of uh, putting it to good use. One, one of the things I'm not sure if you guys read much about, I remember when it was first proposed mm-hmm. and I remember reading the GitHub issue or you know, proposal on it. And that was, I guess there's a couple of different names for it, but the default interface implementations or default interface methods. So that is that you can define method bodies essentially inside an interface now. So previously, obviously, interfaces just was the contract, but now you're now able to actually add a, a method and with the body inside an interface, you don't... Typically, you might previously do it. It almost mixes up what abstract classes almost did. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, it's like okay, now how is that different than an abstract class? Other than now, you can you can inherit from multiple interfaces. And I think one of their sessions did talk about if you have a clash between the default interface methods between two, how you can tell it which one to use. Oh, geez. I mean, that doesn't sound that, <laughs> that appealing. Basically, I, I read through the GitHub tracker and the way that they explained it was that interfaces have a... They, they don't hold state, essentially. So abstract classes, they are still an object. They still hold state. Whereas an interface doesn't hold state, but it can still define what it's going to do, but it, doesn't, it isn't actually holding anything itself. They had a really good example of a way in which you would want to use this. And that was actually IEnumerable. And that is that if they they cannot basically add anything to IEnumerable, that interface anymore, because so much code inherits from it. But if they could add, an, uh, add a method to IEnumerable that you can override if you want, but also has a default what, like way of working, then mm-hmm. you, don't have, you don't have to implement that method. And so you can essentially, essentially extend interfaces. So they used a lot of the, the early on interfaces that were in .NET Framework or C Sharp and used those ex- as examples of things that they want to extend, but they can't because so much inherits from them. When you look at this default interface methods, and, and you have some examples on your website, it just it looks weird, right? It doesn't look normal, and it's not what, I think an interface is there to do, right? Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, we've already talked about this, right? With link and entity framework and different things, right? When you first see it, you're like, what is this? And and why is it there? Like, you know, I like my peanut butter and jelly to be on separate pieces of bread. Don't mix them, right? But inevitably, you do, <laughs> for better or for worse. I can see this eventually becoming the new way of doing it, right? That their fault, as they put in here. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's just, it's one of those things that's going to take some time for people to wrap their minds around. I think the funniest thing when, when I talk to people about this is that 
it's such a common interview question for, you know, junior, junior or intermediate developers. What's the difference between an abstract class and an interface? <laughs> and you used to just be able to say, well, an abstract class implements, you know, has a method body and the interface doesn't. But you won't be able to do that anymore. So you'll have to come up with a new interview question uh, to, to ask. But uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not completely sold on it, but I can see why it's needed. If you know, what I, mean. yeah. I, I, I can see it becoming quite messy, quite fast, but I can understand why it was a requirement. So one of the things that you reference is uh, IO linker support. And it's actually something that I haven't dug into, but um, so this trims unneeded packages from self-contained ploy. So this is NuGet stuff. Is this similar to like uh, maybe tree shaking and angular? 100%. So the reason I came across this is because also in .NET Core 3 is the single EXE builds. So that okay. is you, you have a console app or a desktop app and you just want to give them a single EXE. Gotcha. Which is, I mean, I haven't come across this too much in business cases, mm-hmm. but often if I'm building something for a friend, I have to send them a zip file of the release folder and right. be like, op- open this and find the EXE in amongst these hundred DLLs. Right. And so single EXE builds allow, it's essentially a sing- self-contained deploy. So it concludes gotcha. all the DLLs in a single yeah. EXE. When you double click it, it actually unzips its self, self-unzipping, unzips yeah. it to a temporary folder and runs it from there. But one of the problems is, is that, for a hello world, I think I have it on there. It's something like 70 megabytes for a hello world self-contained console package. Okay. Um, and, and that's just massive. Right. So Microsoft also added the ability to essentially tree shake using IR linker. And it just looks through your code and tries to find packages that aren't used. I would say that even using IR Linker with the Hello World self-contained, mm-hmm. it goes from 70 to 29 megabytes, which is still massive, still right. huge. It's still a lot smaller. And right. you can, I mean, you're still getting 50% gain out of that, more than 50% gain. But yeah, it's essentially tree shaking and it's a, a really great feature and it's really simple to use. Okay, cool. Yeah. And like you said, it, uh, from a business perspective, it's not something that, I'm going to see the need to use, but it's uh, it's something I'll, I'll take a look at just because uh, the the whole idea of optimization and giving the client the the best experience possible. It's interesting to see where languages and some frameworks, you know, and technologies are doing really doing everything they can so that 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 the customer gets the best, you know, the fastest load, the, the, the best experience, the best looking UI uh, that we can give them. I didn't see them use that IL Spy in their demos in the conference because, you know, even the one that they, they demoed showing the single EXE ended up being 80 mm-hmm. something megabytes. Yeah, a lot of comments in the chat were that it was like 80 megabytes. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's good that they do have that option to to shrink that down even more. Yeah, I mean, and I think you can use. I mean, you can use it across not just single EXEs, but even in self-contained deploys where you end up with that folder of you know hundred DLLs. You can use IL Linker there as well to shrink it down quite a lot. Okay. Do you know the location that it actually puts all the the temp files? Is it is it in App Data or is it you know, local? So, I actually spent hours trying to find where when and this was a few months ago, so I was using the preview version of .NET Core 3. Mm-hmm. I would have to have another look, but I searched and there was a lot of people asking on GitHub, a lot of comments on the blogs asking, where does this go? Where does right. it get unzipped? Because especially for some of these companies that have a much more locked down workstation, where it gets unzipped to could be very important. And I... I just couldn't find it. it. It just says in the documentation, it gets unzipped to your temp folder. And that's it. And so what, what temp folder, what, which right. folder is that? But yeah, so that's essentially what happens, but I could not tell you the actual folder that it gets unzipped to. Well, we'll have to dig into that, right? Or, or bug them a little more once it's released, <laughs> right? Where is this really going? Because we kind of need to know. 
I'll go over there and knock on the door. You know, it's only, <laughs> it's only a five hour drive for me. And I go there quite often, a couple of miles from Madaya family from Redmond. So Wade, what's one of your favorite topics that you've written on your website.net uh, core tutorials? I think some of the multi-part series that I've written. So yeah. the recent ones were Dapper. Um, earlier than that was okay. Web Jobs. The Dapper one was quite, quite big for me because I, I was trying to help a friend get used to... It's actually interesting because we talked about Blazor a little bit being a C-sharp alternative to JavaScript and you don't have mm-hmm. to do JavaScript. But I sometimes find to the detriment that things like Link or Entity Framework, people feel they don't need to learn SQL. Writing an article about Dapper and how to use Dapper and things like that was really important because I had quite a few people um, working with me and friends that were trying to learn C-sharp that were trying to learn uh, .NET or .NET Core, but they, they were shying away from learning SQL because they found it too hard. And really writing an, a, an article series on Dapper was, was probably my, one of my better ones. So for those that don't know, what is Dapper and what does it do? So Dapper is essentially a micro ORM. It was created by the guys over at Stack Overflow. It runs SQL statements and maps them to objects in a very simple way. Very similar. It just adds on to ADO.net. Mm-hmm. in a very, very simple way. And it allows you to run queries that will then map back to DTOs or entities, uh, will allow you to run uh, SQL statements. It also does things like protect you from SQL injection by automatically parameterizing your queries, things of that nature. The difference between that and something like Entity Framework is really just the weight. You don't have link to help you. You have to write all the SQL statements manually, any sort of migration plan that you have, you're going to have to use a third-party tool such as DBL. But the idea is that when you do select statements in Dapper is that you always map back to DTO. So you're only selecting exactly what you need. So right. what you might call projections and entity framework. In Dapper, the idea is that in your select statement, you're only selecting the columns that you actually need. And that's actually why... Uh, part of the reason, at least, why Stack Overflow started using it is they wanted complete control over the statements that they were running instead of sort of relying on Entity Framework to to do the right thing when writing the statement. Especially in the early days of EF Core, there were articles, I think it was mostly around group by statements. EF Core would really mangle them and really not output good SQL um, and so Dapper sort of gets around that by you're writing the SQL yourself and executing it. When it comes to SQL, right, maybe it's a, a dying art, so to speak. But I think if you if you work in .NET and C Sharp and in the back end in any um, capacity, you you're best off learning SQL, at least knowing knowing enough to be dangerous, so to speak, because it's a very important piece of the, the process, right? Getting the data you need. Um, and I've seen, right, tons of triggers in a database and poorly uh, written views and any number of uh, nasty groupings that just were not efficient and that could be cleaned up or fixed fairly easily. So I would even go as far to say, I mean, some of my friends who are learning programming, and I've had to say, when you write a where statement in SQL, you can't just write the where statement on any column. There needs to be an index. Here's how indexes work. It's even even just small things like that where you realize when you're writing in link or you're writing entity framework, it's easy to sort of shoot yourself in the foot because you're so abstracted away from what's actually being run and you're so away from... The, what what the code that's actually being executed against SQL? Yeah, I, I would definitely go that as far as you know. Really need to understand indexing within whatever database you're using, and it's one thing that I've learned over the years is with Entity Framework, I will take the same code that I have in my project, I'll throw it into LinkPad, and then LinkPad will spit out what SQL that it was executing. I take that SQL, put it back into SQL Management Studio to get the execution plan. 
Mm-hmm. And then I can see really where did it write an inefficient query and do I need to update an index or create a new index to really make that uh, a lot more performant. Would, would you say that looking at execution plans and statistics and things is almost like a dying art? Because I talk to many developers now and they don't even know execution plans exist or what they are. And I have to go over and show them, okay, when you run this query, here's what's actually going to be happening. And I think so many developers now just have, uh, again, I, I don't, I don't want to blame everything on Entity Framework, but part of it is that abstraction away from from actually running the SQL. Well, I also think part of it too, right, is uh, as two new te- uh, technologies come out, as things evolve, right, you got things like MongoDB or uh, even GraphQL. And it's, and it's a different way of looking at the data and getting the data and storing the data. And so, right, there are people out there that have never... You seek one may never use it. If you're using any framework and you're using SQL databases, at least at least uh, know a little bit of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. think there's not enough uh, education out there about it. You know, you go to a conference and a lot of these things that people teach, they don't want to go too deep. Mm-hmm. And really, to get into this, you know, any framework down to SQL queries, then indexing and, and statistics and execution plans, I think you lose a lot of people in some of those sessions going that far because, you know, half of developers out there have less than five years experience. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's once you get past that five years and you kind of know all the basics, you go, okay, now what can I learn past what I've learned already? And you have to do you know, self-education and find out these things. What's better than what I've already, already know? I think one of the things as well is that I, I always tell people, I think it's super hard to become a full stack developer these days. I think, you know, we talk about what was just added in .NET 3.5 and the different syntaxes and syntax sugar, and you've got to know this, that, you've got to know the old way and the new way. And I think that there's so much to learn now that it's actually quite hard to to learn all of what C Sharp and .NET Core has to offer. And, you know, then you've got to learn a JavaScript framework, either React or Angular on the front end, as well as HTML, CSS. And then as well as that, now you've got to go learn SQL as well. It's, it's so much to learn. And I think as well, the bar is set so high. When I was learning programming, and probably when you guys were too, if I wrote a console app that, you know, did a couple of small things, executed a, some math commands. That was a great start for me. People want to create their own social network and, and using .NET Core and Entity Framework right off the bat. The, the bar is set so high for when you start learning now. I definitely yeah, feel like I was born at the, the right time. Yeah. You know, right time, right place, you know. I graduated high school in 94 you know, that was just before the internet started taking off and, and I've always had a next computers. And like you said, there was less to to have to to hold in your head, the less stuff you had to know to to start out simply. Yeah, whenever I'm at a conference and at like some of a lunch session or things like that, and the topic of NED framework comes up, you know, I always make sure to tell people that okay, now you make make sure that you learn how to do projections. Make you sure you learn how to do, you know, as no tracking, understand the context, how long it stays around, it's cached, so on and so forth. And that'll really make you a step above developer than most people out there. Because they, they don't realize that when they just do, you know, get me this, this object from the database, it's doing a select all mm-hmm. unless they do a projection. Mm-hmm. And that's really bad for performance. Over the last many years, We've had a ton of terrific people on JavaScript Jabber. And one thing that I realized over the last few years was that we were missing out on some of the real story there. So we would talk about the topic that they were experts in and help you keep up on what's going on in the JavaScript community. But I felt like we had these terrific people on there and we didn't really talk about who they were. So I pulled together a show called My JavaScript Story. And what we do is we interview the people that we've had on JavaScript Jabber or people just from the community. Maybe we'll have you on sometime. And we talk about how they got into programming, how they got into JavaScript, what they're working on, what they're well-known for, and how they've developed their career. And some of the people are extremely well-known and come from really interesting backgrounds. 
So if you're curious about how your JavaScript heroes got into JavaScript, then go check out my JavaScript story. You can find it at myjsstory.com. So uh, we're kind of getting the end of our time frame here. Anything else that we want to talk about before we go to picks? No, I think uh, we've had a good discussion. Got several good uh, links for the show notes. So if you're good, I'll go ahead and give my pick for this week. And it's actually another link for the show notes. It's actually um, a website that, well, I guess it's Amazon, but it's a company on Amazon that sells coding t-shirts. My wife got me a couple of them and I've gotten a kick out of them. But one of them, for instance, says, uh, and this is code, right? If coding equals true, headphones equals true, focus equals 100, conversation equals null. My wife's like, she's like, that's you. And I'm like, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I'll add to the show notes. Okay. For my pick this week, I think I'm going to talk about another podcast that I listen to. And a lot of people probably know about this podcast already. It's called Freakonomics. And it really makes uh, an interesting discussion about various different topics, talking about economics. And, you know, it's a really big podcast and lots of different subjects that make it interesting to listen to. And so if you want to find out about economics, try the Freakonomics podcast. All right, Wade, you, uh, you have any picks you want to... I unfortunately didn't come prepared. I didn't know we got to do a nice little plug at the end. Um, so I'm going to skip out this week. Well, is there any movies or books or like that that you've read recently that were interesting? It doesn't um, have to be technology-based. I just went and grabbed, actually, Masters of Doom from the library, um, the classic book yeah. uh, by, with John Carmack around uh, the creation of the Doom video game. I've heard so many stories around it um, that I finally decided to go and grab it. And I'm just about to start reading that. Um, I'm sure it's going to be a great read. I recently watched uh, John Carmack on uh, the Joe, Joe Rogan podcast as well. And, you know, the guy's just a complete programming genius. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading that. Yeah, I remember when Doom first came out and that was just so big. And I played hours and hours and hours, so... Glad that's still around. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. It's been a good good talk. Always. No thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks, Wade. And it's uh, just about summer down there, right? Um, well, I'm at right at the bottom of the South Island, so it is still freezing here. It was about, <laughs> it was about four degrees yesterday, I think, um, but it should slowly creep up. I think we usually get about two days of summer here. And okay. there's those two days you can take your wetsuit down to the beach and have a swim because it's still well, too cold. <laughs> you're, you're welcome to come to New Orleans. It's only 100 to 110. I'm oh, sorry, when I say four degrees, I mean four degrees Celsius, obviously. Right. As well. But that's, that's still cold. I'm in uh, northern Idaho, eastern Washington, and uh, we've got snow in the forecast here this weekend. So that would be pretty early, early for here. But uh, yeah, we're heading towards winter. So thanks again. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks, Wade. And we'll talk to you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.